And as it is now the top of the hour, I want to welcome everybody to the Pit Stop. It's your fortnightly midweek rest area to refuel your drive. I'm Karen Cummins. I'm an audiobook narrator and the chief cartographer for narratorsroadmap.com. And I'm your host for Pit Stop. And with me in the co-pilot seat is my lovely friend and award-winning audiobook narrator, Anne Flosnick, who hosts the Narrator Uplift Show here on Clubhouse. So how are you this afternoon, Anne? Oh, great. Thank you. It's lovely to be in the new house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of looks the same, right? I'm not <laughs> not detecting a whole lot of changes, which I worried about because I didn't know if they changed everything or just some things. Anyway, I, I don't it's, get it. But here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. And that's half the battle. <laughs> yes. Well, every other Wednesday, we do the Pit Stop. Audiobook narrators who do more than narrate pull into Pit Stop, and they are sure to inspire you to follow your interest and use all of your talents and gifts. And I want everybody to know we're recording the conversation, so you'll be able to re-listen or catch parts you missed. And feel free to comment in the chat or raise your hand in the app if you want to be part of the conversation, because we would love to hear from you. So thanks, everybody, so much for joining us. I am super excited today to welcome Ann Richardson to Pit Stop. Ann is an award-winning audiobook narrator who works from her home studio, and she's done that since 2008. In addition to narrating for many of the big publishers, she coaches new narrators independently through Voice One Training Academy in San Francisco, and also online with narrator.life. During the pandemic, she started Great Plains Audiobooks, an audiobook publishing and production company, and we're going to be talking with her about that. She lives in Northern California with her husband and two French Mastiffs, and she balances her free time between long-distance running, wine tasting, and cleaning up after the slobbery dogs. And I'm not sure if it's in that order, <laughs> but maybe she'll tell us that too. But welcome, Anne. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you, Karen. It's so nice to join you and Anne, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this. This is my first time in a house, so uh, I hope I can keep it all together. <laughs> I'm sure you will with your normal aplomb in such matters. It, it, I'm sure it's going to be a great discussion. You know, <laughs> you and I have known each other, I don't know, like 10 years or something, and there's still so much I don't know. Like, I know you studied broadcast journalism, but I don't think I know what your original career plan was. What were you wanting to do or be? Well, that was it, actually. I was going to the University of, University of Nebraska at Lincoln studying broadcast journalism, and my plan was I was going to knock Diane Sawyer off her pedestal. <laughs> uh, I was going for Barbara Walters, so you and I were... <laughs> In the same boat. <laughs> yeah, she could keep hers. I liked, I thought Diane Sawyer was classier somehow, so I was going to go for her. Um, but then I met a boy and fell in love, married him, and jetted off to California. So that put an end to my broadcast journalism studies. But I did realize in that transition that I don't have the personality to do that. Um, I respect people's privacy and I'm not an ambulance chaser and I don't like to get up at three o'clock in the morning and go into some place to work. So all those things made me realize that broadcast journalism probably was not my calling. Well, so then you 
I, you, I know you worked in pharmaceutical services for a long time. Did you go straight there? Like after you and Gary moved to California? Yes, did I did. Go yeah, straight I, into that line or? I did. You know, we were just starting out and uh, you do anything that comes along for a paycheck. And it was really kind of ironic. Um, I got introduced to one of the directors at the company because our friends from Nebraska, one of them worked there and she knew that I was into horses and her director also had horses and was looking for someone to exercise her horses. And I thought, well, that's a kind of a nice way to ease into California life. So I came into the office and interviewed with the director for a little bit. And she said, wow, you know, everything's cool, but we really need a receptionist. Do you think you could fill in until we find one? And um, so I said, yes. And then the, I was there for 10 years. <laughs> never, I never did exercise or horses. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But I didn't. I didn't stay the receptionist. I I graduated from that to um, being the coordinator for a consulting pharmacist pharmacist department, uh, personal secretary to the president of the company, and you know just on to other things. A lot of continuing education stuff, also. Well, that's because you, I think, always have had, and I know, have always had ambition and weren't content just to stay with the status quo and always moving up, up, up. Yeah, you know, I believe in the climb. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. good. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm thinking, when is the climb going to stop? You know, I know. just get to a level place. And <laughs> I know, I know. So, yeah, I mean, that's when you, I, yeah, that's a good question, Karen and Anne. I don't know when, when you hit that place where you want to just sit back and, and let, residuals roll in or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever hit that place. Well, I actually hit it several times a week, but then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I want, but that's not what actually happens. So um, it's a temporary thing, right? I think so. Yeah. Because then I think, oh, but I want to do this and I want to do that. And, oh, I need to yeah. find out how to do something else. So it, it just kind of keeps rolling back in on itself, I think. Yeah. Well, how did how did you get from the pharmaceutical place to working as an insurance specialist? <laughs> That's funny. Um, you, you, we never have a straight path, do we? It's always very circuitous. So I quit working at the pharmaceutical company because I was having my second child, and I thought I wanted to stay home and be a full time mommy. Well, the second child didn't agree with that. <laughs> He was a, of such a personality at a young age that he needed much more interaction and stimulation than just mom could give him. So I put him into daycare and he thrived there. I mean, he really, he he just really needed that kind of stimulation. He was uh, ADDHD borderline and we didn't know that until I narrated a book about it and he ticked all the boxes. Oh. Um yeah, it was really interesting. That's the beauty of our job, right? We get to learn so much. Um, so after I quit the pharmacy, I could have gone back, but I didn't really want to. So I took a job with, uh, boy, I, one of our best friends who also raced cars with my husband worked for as an on-the-road consultant and salesperson for after-the-market auto products like 
warranties and paint sealants and things like that and insurance. So she said, well, why don't you come work for me? You know, it's fun and we know we get along and I know what kind of person you are. So we did. And so for four years, I traveled 500 miles a week driving oh. from, yeah, driving from Salinas to Marin to way out Central Valley dealing with car dealerships. And I like to say I did the impossible. I sold things to car salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that was, and that taught me a lot. Oh my goodness. Um, that taught me a lot about how to present yourself, um, how to, how to be cautious about who you hit your wagon to, you know? So, so like, say you're in with a company and they have a product and you're like hawking this product really hard. You really want your customers to buy it. You believe in it, but then you realize it's not that great of a product. And so then you decide, wow, should I continue representing this product or should I take a step back or, you know, it, and also the way you represent yourself. I mean, how you dress, how you talk, how you interact with people, you know, it all makes a huge difference. And I learned a lot trial by fire in that job. And it's really helped me in my narrating career as well. You know, I bet you could put together a little course just on that topic. Mm. And and maybe you maybe that's part of what you already teach in your beginning narration classes. I do. But, I touch on a lot of those aspects, but you know what, Karen and Dan, times are changing. So I employed a lot of the things that I learned in that marketing job and also from watching my father, who was an immigrant from Sweden, who had his own heating and air conditioning company. And I watched his integrity. You know, if if a customer called at 7 p.m. on Friday night and said, hey, can you come out and fix my AC? Um, my dad did because his advertising in the yellow pages said 24-7. Mm. And I knew he didn't want to go out there at, you know, seven o'clock on a Friday night, but he did it because he said he would. Mm. And times are changing. And so this generation of young people don't exactly offer things like 24-7. They have a better grasp on their own personal time and time off, and they respect themselves a lot more than I think some of the old guard did. You know, yeah, we detest this job, but we said we'd do it, so we're going to do it. And we overpromise or we underpromise and overdeliver. And I think that's maybe hitting a a level, not necessarily going away, but people I don't think are quite overpromising or overdelivering. Gosh, I got to get that straight. Um, like they used we, to. We can overpromise. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. But maybe that's a bad thing too if you don't live up to it. Exactly. Yeah. So you want to underpromise and overdeliver so that that you are sure you honor your word. And I'm not saying this up and coming group of professionals are slackers or shysters or anything by any means. I'm just saying they seem to have a better grip on what they offer and when to draw the line. And so I've I don't quite um pound the or stump, you know, I don't quite advertise those old style 
advertising and um, marketing things like I used to, because I think some of them are obsolete. Hmm. That's interesting. But integrity is never obsolete. It never Absolutely. goes out of style. Huge, so huge. Your, your comment about if I say I will do something, I will do it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it has to be the core of everything we do. And, you know, you hear producers talk and it just boggles my mind there? that they'll say things that, you know, people will say, oh, I, I'll get it in. And then they don't get it in the book done in time or they don't let them know there's a conflict or just all these things that could be cleared up with a little communication and a little of standing by your word. And it just shocks me to hear that there are people in our profession who don't necessarily have that as a value or they don't demonstrate it, I guess, maybe is the better way to say it. Because I'm surprised every time I hear a casting director say something like that, that people really act this way. It, it, just, it just confuses me because that's not how I was taught to approach things. I know. I agree with you. I mean, it's really disheartening to see uh, incidents like that where either a narrator ghosts a publisher who hired them, whether it's independent or a big one, or mm-hmm. they ghost each other when it's a dual or duet situation. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's, it's sad. It, it actually hurts to see those things. It does. But now how did you get from working from, you know, the sales and insurance to the car dealers how did you get from there to audiobooks, or is there another step in between? Well, there was a big step. It was kind of a cliff. 2008 oh. hit, and <laughs> <laughs> the economy dropped out, and people quit buying cars, so my job evaporated. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, much like today's day and age, you know, when COVID hit, people came to audiobooks in droves. You know, they saw all those articles that said, uh, make easy money at home, you know, thank you, Publishers Weekly and New York Times, <laughs> but that's not mm-hmm. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so my husband said, why don't you just sit and contemplate what, what it is you want to do? Um, because I always did say, I don't know what, what I want to be when I grow up. And I decided to revisit the, the broadcasting thing, not exactly in that capacity, but I thought, well, maybe there's some form of it that I can do from home. And I took a community education class called You're on the Air, How to Make It in Voiceovers. And I got really good feedback. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. But is it a fluke? So I took another one at a community college nearby, like two weeks later, and I got really good feedback. And I thought, okay. Maybe I've got something here. So I hired a mentor who turned out to be Heather Kafer. Um, Mm. Yeah. And she said, why don't you volunteer for recording for the blind and dyslexic, which is now known as Learning Ally. She said, just to get used to being behind the microphone and storytelling and being comfortable in that zone because I was studying with her to be successful in voiceovers and it was really a hustle And um, it wasn't really a good fit. So as soon as I was approved to narrate at Learning Ally, because they send you through some training before they let you narrate, I was smitten. That was it. I was very blessed to find my calling. Not everybody finds it, but I found it. 
and that was it. Wow. I, I'm sitting here smiling because your story and my, <clears throat> excuse me, and my path are, are so similar. It, it's, it shocks me how similar it is because I did the same thing kind of, but this, we're not talking about me. We're talking about you, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm just relating to everything you, you said, because, you know, I did the same recording for the blind as well. And, you know, at first I thought that's all, that's all I needed. But then I, you know, the more I did, the more I wanted to do. And um, so how did you move from going with Learning Ally to actually working with commercial publishers? I researched online incessantly. I mean, voraciously. I was online all day long. I, I couldn't get enough. And there weren't very many resources back then. I think the biggest turning point was um, I, I tuned into a podcast with Trish Bassani and Terry Daniels, and they talked a little bit about audiobooks in there. And they gave me enough hints for me to have a direction to research. So I started Googling everything about publishers, uh, about coaches, about the process, things like that. And so I decided to try and find a good coach. Um, I found kind of a shady one at first, but we won't go into that. And then <laughs> I coached with Mark Cashman and it was really affirming. He told me I was on the right track and he told me I had the, <clears throat> the guts or I had the, I had the chops basically. Mm -hmm. And then through learning ally, they were having their recordathon, and I, I joined the APA because of, it was either Mark or it was the podcast that suggested joining the APA. And I did, and I listened to a podcast with Simon Vance, and I found out he was in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I went to his website, and this was during a recordathon, and I sent an email, and it said, Hey, Simon, I'm an aspiring narrator in the Bay Area, and I'm working with Learning Ally. Would you be willing to donate an hour of your time to record for our recordathon? It's our annual fundraiser, and your name would bring a lot of attention and credibility and and it'd be great to meet you and holy cow he responded within an hour and he said he would be happy to so <laughs> i was just so impressed with that guy he's still so accessible and so friendly and willing to lend a hand um i wouldn't have done this but he's he's a brave guy he came to my house i served him tea and I drove us to Palo Alto, which was an hour one way. And I got to pick his brain for all the time we were in the car together. And he helped me figure some things out. He gave me some great direction. Uh, he offered to listen to my demo, gave me a little bit of feedback on that. And I just continued in that way, reaching out to people and trying things out and then ACX came on the scene and I auditioned for a whole bunch of really cool books simply because I liked how they sounded. <laughs> I didn't know. Oh, yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I'll bet on that horse because it's a cool color. You know, that's a stupid <laughs> <laughs> Beginner's luck. Yeah, a stupid way to do it, but 
I did it with zero thought of, will this make me money? Will this look good in my portfolio? Is this a person I want to continue working with? What's their history? I didn't know any of it. So I taught myself to check out everything before I jump in the boat. You know, who is this person? How many books do they have out? Who's this publisher? What do they specialize in? Things like that. And so that, I guess that kind of tells you about how I got started. I remember seeing your name a lot back in the early days of ACX. And there was one occasion, somebody had contacted me about, they had a book that they needed a narrator who knows Swedish. And I said, well, you know, that's not a common language that a narrator might know. Ask us for Spanish or French or German. That's, you know, maybe Italian because I I know a narrator with that. But uh, I don't know anybody who speaks Swedish. Good luck with that, I'm saying to this person. (laughs) my, My brother, my younger brother used to have a quote on his email SIG line that said, people who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by someone who is doing it. And lo and behold, <laughs> if you didn't do that book for her, I forget which one it was, but I mean, I was just like flabbergasted. Somebody actually knows Sweden. And so now you're, you're like doing, that's kind of a niche for you, it seems. Yeah. You know, that's funny. I remember that, Karen. Oh my gosh. That was so many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> that was so many years ago. So I did narrate that book and it was a beautifully written book about Swedish immigrants that came and settled in the Midwest. And it was just a lovely book. And it was a series. She wrote six of them. And yeah, I narrated all six of them because, and this is important, um, any new narrators listening, I wanted to build that part of my um, catalog. I wanted to be able to say, you know, take demos from those books of the Swedish that I spoke and how I interpreted it, shared it, whatever. Um, It was a conscious decision because it was not a money-making series, and I knew that. But I really wanted that in my catalog, so I did them. And then she, this was kind kind of a pisser, if I may. She came back with a seventh book, and she said, I've come out with my seventh book, and I'd love for you to narrate. And I said, okay, well, since this was not part of, you know, what I had anticipated, I'm going to have to charge you my going rate, which was a reasonable rate. It wasn't high, but it wasn't, you know, rock bottom. And she said, well, I can't do that. Or actually, no, you know what? She didn't even reply. She just ghosted me and and picked somebody else to do a royalty share. And I thought, you know what? I did six books for this woman, and I think I did a pretty good job, and she can't even throw me a bone. (laughs) You know, come on. (laughs) That was kind of a pisser. But anyway, onward and upward. You're entitled to say that. That, That's a pisser. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't seem fair, you know? It just, it didn't seem fair. So anyway, I grew from that. I got a little wiser. You know, maybe I could have done just, two or three books and, and not all six, but <laughs> oh, well. Well, and I know you did more than 10 books before you started teaching. And I guess you started on your site and then you become part of the faculty on narrator.life. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't start you're, teaching. You're doing voice one too. Yeah. So yeah, they were the first ones to reach out to me and ask me to join their faculty. And that was 
only, I want to say like five years ago. So I had done over a hundred books before I uh -huh. started coaching. And even then I didn't feel like I had enough under my belt, but I realized, you know, I can. And did we lose you? You still there? Can you hear me? We are, but we you, you know. dropped out for a second. That is so weird. Technology um, is wonderful, but it's not always perfect. No, you're, and you're I'm wondering if that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was saying that uh, I didn't start coaching until I had probably over 100, 125 books out there. And even then I didn't feel qualified to coach. But then I realized I made all the mistakes. So <laughs> I can certainly share <laughs> with newbies, you know, how to avoid those mistakes and and what constitutes integrity, you know, and, and what goes into being a narrator that they may not have realized. So that's my niche in coaching. I don't profess to be able to coach um, well-established narrators. That's not my focus. There's much better coaches out there to help focus your performance and improve your engagement, things like that. But if you're new and you're learning to navigate, I can certainly help with that. And then you started a production company because you didn't have enough to do, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, my goodness. Well, that started, it had always been niggling in the back of my mind because on a flight over to Sweden one year, I was reading Wilhelm Moberg's book, The Emigrants. And that is a classic book. It's it's wonderful. It's huge. And it's it's just a beautiful book about a journey of a family from Sweden over to America back when there was a huge exodus. I was like, I want to say in the twenties from Sweden to America. And I thought I would love to narrate this book. And so I searched and searched and searched and I sent email after email, just shooting in the dark, trying to find out who owned the audio rights to it so I could narrate it. And, um, I couldn't get it done, so I put it on the back burner. But my Swedish instructor, who taught me Swedish, gave me the Swedish version of that book. So I had one in English and I had one in Swedish. And I just, I cherished those books and they lived on my desk. And then funny how things come around. I mean, you and I have talked about manifesting your own destiny about four years ago. Tantor reached out and I was having a terrible day with technology. My email was totally crashing on me every time I got a message. So I could see the subject line and the first two or three words of the email and then it would die. Oh. So it was like a, like a strobe light email. I got this email from Tantor and between the flashes and crashes, I saw Wilhelm Moberg, the immigrants. Are you available? And I was like, oh my gosh, I was dancing around the house, even though my stupid email wouldn't let me reply. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. So I got on my cell phone and emailed back and I said, did I read this right? Because I'm having a terrible issue with technology today. Are you asking if I can narrate the immigrants? And they emailed back, yes. And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I was so over the moon. I mean, oh my gosh. And I still mean to write a blog about that, Karen, like you suggested I should, because it's one of those 
hold your dreams. They'll come true someday stories. Mm. So yeah, anyway, I, I guess that I, story. I have to circle the wagon back though and tell you that that's when the concept of having my own publishing company was planted. The seed was planted in my head because I did search out subsequent books and I did um, find rights holders for subsequent books, but nobody wanted to deal with a person. They said, we don't license our audio rights to individuals. We only deal with publishing companies. And I thought, well, crapola. And then you had your webinar with Jessica Kay about how to obtain audio rights. And I bought that and I've listened to it several times. And I've, I've corresponded with Jessica because she's a great lawyer oh, yeah. and has all the answers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, during the pandemic, um, I handle stress by working. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, yes, I'm, I've got a great heavy narrating load, but I think I should start a publishing company too. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. So I did. And um, I was lucky enough to reach out to some really good Swedish writers and their agents. And I licensed the audio rights to a Swedish book called Inlands. And it was a hit in Sweden. They even made it into a movie, an independently screened movie or whatever you want to call oh, it. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I narrated that and I hired Krista Lewis to direct me because it is such an ethereal book. It's so slice of life, almost stream of consciousness book that I was not sure I was understanding it properly. And she really helped me fully grasp the book and what was going on in it. And so I did it and I published it with Jessica Kay's help and it won an earphones award and I got highlighted in Audiophile magazine. Yay. Yay. <laughs> wow. Yay. Yeah. So it's wonderful. So my, my goal with Great Plains audiobooks is twofold. I will publish books that are by or about Nebraskan authors or about Nebraska or Midlands, I should say, because it can be the Great Plains extends beyond the borders of Nebraska. But being raised there and growing up on a farm and growing up on horseback and in 4-H and things like that, it's really important. It's in my genes. So I love books about or by Nebraskans. And that's one prong of my publishing goal. The other prong is Scandinavian books. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the process of narr narrating another blockbuster Swedish book uh, by Lena Anderson, and it's called Willful Disregard. Um, they were pretty excited that somebody wanted to narrate it in English. So I licensed the rights to that. And later this year, I will license the rights to the sequel and narrate that one as well. Wow. You are on a roll. <laughs> I am. But you know the hard part? Yes, you know the hard part. Marketing. <laughs> oh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> there is that because they have to earn their keep. I, gotta, I have to find a way to have this make money. So that's been the hard part. You know, I can acquire audio rights. I can narrate it or hire somebody to narrate. But it's the marketing. That's the thing that I really struggle with because I'm already narrating my my own books I'm getting hired to narrate, which includes researching and pre-reading. Mm -hmm. 
so where do I find the time to market these audiobooks? Right now I'm squeezing it in in between like on weekends or after hours after I've prepped a book or something at night and it's it's getting to be a lot, but it needs to be done. So yeesh, that's so, the that's the struggle. Sounds like you need to hire a marketing person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. But so before before we leave the whole licensing thing, Anne, because there was a big glide there, you know, from um the first time that you wanted to license something and then you you know you got Jessica Kay and, and listened to her and Karen's presentation about how to do that um had you learned everything you needed to know to to get the, the next book by yourself to license it or did you involve Jessica again I learned enough she helped me license the audio rights or at least whatever you say the audio rights for two three books so mm. two were from University of Nebraska Press, and that was pretty straightforward. The The press had some changes they wanted to make to the contract, and so I worked with Jessica to make sure that that was all okay. And then that book, Inlands, I had to deal with a, a Scandinavian publisher, so that means it was an international deal. And so Jessica yeah. really helped me with that. Um, and I learned a lot working on those three books. So I felt confident going after the next books all on my own using those boilerplate contracts and making sure that I negotiated properly. Like instead of um, negotiating a higher um, advance against royalties, maybe I negotiate with how many years it's available or what percentage of royalties I'll pay out. So she helped me understand a lot of ways I can negotiate that will still work for my company and who I'm dealing with. Goodness gracious. <laughs> it's like an onion, but in fa instead of getting easier, I think this gets more complicated. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so come back to marketing then, because yeah, this, th there's no easy answer to this, is that we just have to, if, if we want to do it, we're going to have to dive in and, and take the steps that you did and just figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a lot of footwork, um, a lot of bandwidth, and so that is a challenge. <laughs> Definitely. Well, well and I would think even more. more so with, with those, with the Scandinavian mm -hmm. books, because a book that's familiar to an American audience, which is your primary market, kind of sells itself, or it has that possibility, where something from Sweden that we don't necessarily know probably takes a bit more to make it visible to people and something they're interested in. Right. And that's where my my um, Swedish comes in handy because I did join a lodge. Remember on Fred Flintstone, the, the Moose Lodge or whatever? He <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I joined. <laughs> I, joined I should make that my ringtone for you, Anne. Yabba dabba doo. Hey, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I joined a Swedish lodge um, mostly to acclimate my kids to the Swedish culture and music and things like that. So we went once a month to this Swedish lodge and learned about 
Swedish, there was a presentation at every lodge. We learned about the Vasa ship that sank, and we learned how to sing happy birthday in Swedish, and we learned all the Swedish Christmas songs and traditions and foods and things like that. Um, and so I know a lot of Swedish American organizations where I can post these audiobooks. Hmm. So it works in my favor. But that's, again, all a building process mm -hmm. and yeah. not an instant fix. It, it obviously has taken time to immerse yourself in that and then find the other organizations. Right. Yeah, and you, it does. Your father, you, your father immigrated, right? So you learned some Swedish as a child, right? Well, that's funny. Um, he did immigrate. He came over in the early 60s. And he was of the mindset, and this is not uncommon, he was of the mindset that he was American now. So he did not force the family or really even promote it very much to learn the language, to learn the culture, to make sure that this aspect of our heritage was retained. Oddly enough, it was my mother from Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, who worked hard to learn how to bake Swedish bread and make Swedish meatballs and what are the customs in Sweden and make sure that we learned a little bit of that. But we didn't learn the language. Dad never taught us to speak the language until I was 14 and my sister was 16 and he took us to visit Sweden for five weeks. And on the plane over there, he taught us to count from one to 10 in Swedish and to say, I don't speak much Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really odd and, and kind of sad, actually, that that was left out of our upbringing so much. And then when he passed away, my sister and I went to Sweden to visit. And when we came back, I made a vow to myself that I would find a way to learn to speak the language. Mm. And so I enrolled in a Swedish speaking course on Monday evenings. And I did that for five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I knew you said you had, a, you said earlier in this conversation, and you mentioned your Swedish teacher. And I thought, oh, well, she must be getting refresh, refresher or just practicing with somebody. But I didn't realize that you came to it rather late. I mean, you didn't get it as, as a child, which is what I had always thought. Yeah, I wish I had grown up bilingual. That would have been cool. No, you grew up as an American and, you know, that's us. I mean, it's everybody speak English. We're American. That's what we expect. Right, right. Uh, thankfully, that's changing. I think um, parents are working hard to make sure their kids are, are um, you know, growing up with, with that included in their upbringing. Whatever heritage they have, I think parents are spending a bit more time letting that be part of their kids growth i think it's very individual though too Anne. um my parents were irish immigrants to england and by no means do i know irish gaelic i wouldn't claim that but it's amazing how many words in gaelic he would and my mother too would just drop into you know normal parlance that's wonderful and it's not that many, but now reflecting back, now that they are both gone, you know, it's amazing how many times I hear those words in my mind 
and think, oh, because half the time I never even really realized it was just like another descriptive word that I didn't really pay any mind to, if that makes any sense. Did your dad not kind of let any Swedish words come in at all? Not really, no. Um, we did, however, have family members from Sweden come and visit us almost every year in the summer. They'd stay for a couple of weeks. So I could overhear them speaking. And mm -hmm. sometimes they would try and teach us a word here and there. Mm -hmm. But um, like meatball, schottbullar. <laughs> <laughs> they would they would teach us little words here and there, and um, of course, when we met our cousins, they would teach us all the cuss words in Swedish. Oh, good, just, yeah, that's what you <laughs> laugh mean. and laugh. I know that's it's adolescence, <laughs> but no, we never did. Um, we did have my father's sponsors were an elderly couple from Sweden. I mean, really elderly, and we would go and visit them and make sure that. They had whatever they needed. And we saw some things that I only realized later on were odd, kind of like you're saying, Anne, things mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. we just, we accepted it as normal. Well, yeah. something that a lot of older Swedish people did was if the coffee was too hot, they would pour it in the saucer and drink from the saucer. Oh, what? And <laughs> you know, I, know, I know, I know. And they'd even put their sugar cubes in the saucer. And I didn't realize until I was taking Swedish lessons that that was a thing. It just it like resurfaced. It had been gone in my memory for so many years. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember they did that. And a lot of them also, this is also very odd and I cannot replicate it. They would speak on the intake of breath. So they would start a sentence in in their language it's obviously that was dumb anyway they would start <laughs> speaking and they would run out of breath but they wouldn't stop talking they would suck in breath and continue talking as they were sucking in breath um this didn't lead to a coughing fit <laughs> no <laughs> no they didn't do it at the same time they drank from the saucer luckily <laughs> <laughs> do you know why about the saucer i mean i'm what what about putting it in the saucer instead of it the cooled, cup? It cooled the coffee. They would pour the hot coffee from the cup into the saucer to cool it down a little bit so it was drinkable. But did they pour it back in the cup to drink it? No, they, they drank, drank it from, from the saucer. saucer. Yeah. I imagine yes. it would be too messy to try and pour it back into a smaller opening. That, that would be Wait, all down cool. the, I don't drink coffee, but if I did, that would be all down the front of my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> This is why we have cups. <laughs> true, true. Well, I've got a, a question or maybe more than one. It depends on what I like to call the pit stop hot seat. So one of my favorite questions to ask people is if you went into the witness protection plan, what identity would you like to assume? Oh, wow. That's the usual um, reaction to this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, shoot. Oh, dang, Karen, that's a good one. Um, I guard. I'd be a gardener. I'd work at a nursery. Oh. Do you garden now? You and Anne does a lot of gardening. You do you do that too? In my dreams, yeah. I do. I love gardening. I love propagating. I love pollinating. I love raising edible stuff. I, I have a passion for succulents and cacti. I just, I love gardening. 
and, and not to mention daisies and seeds. And thank you very exactly. much for my yeah. my spring collection. <laughs> oh, good! You got it. You're welcome. I did. Yeah, I had a wild week last week, and I didn't get to send you a note, but I I did appreciate that very much. And, and oh, it's exactly. such a great branding thing for you too, obviously, but. Uh, it definitely, now that I hear about your love of gardening, it's like this all ties together. Yeah, I love it. And daisies are just, the reason I love them is because they're just so simple. They don't try very hard. You know, they're they're just, they grow and they're beautiful and they're just so simple. <laughs> so another question I would like to know is, what is your most trivial, useless, or flat out counterproductive superpower oh man <laughs> my oh man i i okay i can tell you what breed a dog is by just looking at it <laughs> i'm kind of a a dog breed nerd that's a, that's, um, a, that's a good one isn't that strange yeah i i just love reading about dogs and dog breeds and it's same with horses too and for one of my birthdays um i was given two huge huge volumes of dog breed identification books it was like an encyclopedia that that's what they were called dog breed encyclopedia of dog breeds oh, wow. and i poured over those things i learned the most fascinating dog breeds in other countries, weird looking, strange, specialized. I just, I love them all. And so, you know, if you show me an obscure dog, I could probably tell you what it is. <laughs> That's a great superpower. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, yeah, I know. I'm sure I know a lot of other worthless crap that takes up my brain space so that I can't remember my social security number. Uh, well, generally you're not asked that, and I sure wouldn't ask you that. So, and, and you have a card, you can look at that. You can, you know, that one's not one that you have to remember because you have it written down and you can find that. Exactly. So, <laughs> so do you, do you have a big why? Do you know what it is? I mean, you don't have to tell us if you do, but like, do you have a big why behind, you do what you do? Yeah, I love, I love, love, love reading great stories. And I want everybody else to love it as much as I do. And if I can be a vehicle to share how fantastic stories are, then that's what I want to do. Mm. Whether it's writing the stories I love to write. So whether it's writing the stories or narrating the stories, I just want to share the emotions, the colors, the the feelings of the story with other people. Well, that's a great answer. That makes us all want to love it with you. Even if, if we already didn't, we would want to. And, oh, and you mentioned writing. You. And I remember you took a class or maybe more than one at Berkeley and it seems like you published it and then decided to work further on it. So where are you on your writing? Because I know yeah, you don't have enough do. to do, so you've got to be an author <laughs> too. Please. I know, I know. I, 
I, I tell myself all the time, if, if I got laryngitis or something, I would finally have a chance to work on those books that I've got outlined. Um, I've got like three novels outlined that I haven't had a chance to finish, but anyway, that's okay. Um, I did, I took a, a creative writing class at university or Berkeley, Cal Berkeley. It was online and it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I did finish writing a book. It was a, a like a romance, an easy reading, easy writing romance. And what it was, was part of what they called Kindle Worlds. And so at the time, this was several years ago, they had what they called Kindle Worlds. So somebody with a successful series that was published on Kindle would give permission to other writers to use their characters and their setting and write like fan fiction. Mm. So I used a little bit of this one woman's uh, Kindle world and wrote this story about some traveling gypsies or Romani people who put on a show in San Francisco and, um, yeah, I could go on and on. Anyway, I wrote it. It was a romance. It got published as part of Kindle Worlds. And then they pulled the program about five years later. So my book became unpublished. So I'm trying to go through it and kind of tighten things up. I know better now and I, I know what I want to change. And some there was some implausible part that I needed to fix, but I I wanted to publish the thing and get it out there. So I didn't fix it. So I want to fix that and on and on and on. And then I've got, like I said, I have like three other books outlined that I want to write and put out there. But I just, you know, other things are more important right now. I know that several narrators have either taken a writing class or they've read a book about writing. Some of them, even for their job as a narrator, have had to narrate a book about writing. Do you find that that helps you as a narrator? Does it bring out something in you as a narrator that you didn't have before, like to understand some deeper level of the story or point of view or something? Yes, absolutely. What it did for me and having written a book really drove home the point that every word that author puts on paper is important. And so I know that sometimes as a narrator, it's easy to get a little frustrated at, you know, ugh, why does he use this word so often? Why, why do they say it that way? They could say it this way and it would be better, more concise, clearer. And then you got to kind of have to back off of that because writing is a Herculean task. I mean, that's a huge deal. And I guarantee you every word that I put down on paper, I meant to put down on paper and I agonized over it. So by golly, if I had somebody hired to narrate it, they better write every word I wrote. <laughs> so <laughs> that really helped me appreciate from the writer's perspective, what goes into writing a story and why they wrote the way they wrote. I may not understand it, but that's how they wanted to write it. So I need to honor that. But surely as a narrator, you must think like, because you're hearing yourself read these words aloud and they've said the word door 14 times on the same page, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, some of it is not. I think it is not that it was intentional. It was that they didn't read it aloud and hear the repetition of words and hear, because I mean, I, you, I get plot errors. You know, they'll say something on one page and then 20 pages over, they either repeat the same thing or they say something that couldn't have happened at this point in the story. And I think if every author read their words aloud, they'd catch so much of this stuff. And so, yeah. I mean, I know even myself, like even, you know, an email, I I will sometimes write it so fast that like the word that often becomes then or vice versa. And I don't see it until I'm actually reading it aloud. So I, I mean, I can't think that every word is intentional because I mean, I get that the thought is intentional, but maybe the expression isn't. Yeah. I, okay. So after my flowery speech about honoring their words, but yes, it was a great they're... speech. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to knock your speech. It no. was wonderful. No, but there is reality, Karen, and uh, hiring an editor should be part of that reality. Uh, I agree. You know, there are, there are, ugh, I've, I've had some struggles, let's just say, you know, so-and-so gets kidnapped on page 48, but on page 53, they are a part of the conversation going on. Right. And, <laughs> and it shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> so, right. yeah. And, and that, you know, that also is a lesson in itself to keep engagement with the story, because if you don't, that sucker is going to unravel on you. And you that those are points in time where you may want to reach out to the publisher and say, hey, uh, so-and-so got kidnapped, but they resurfaced and it shouldn't be that way. What do you want me to do? And so the publisher may reach out to the author or they may just make an executive decision and say, oh, you fix it or whatever. Um, but those are times when you may consider reaching out and getting clarification. But you, it, it forces you to stay engaged uh -huh. if you care about what you're doing, that is. Mm -hmm. And I happen to care very much about the stories I'm telling. So, uh -huh. yeah, it's painful sometimes. <laughs> well, we're coming up on the end of our time with you. And so audience, if you want to jump in, definitely raise your hands or um, put a, you know, put a question up because we'd love to hear from you. But I wonder, Anne, do you, do you have any advice to other people who are thinking about expanding beyond narration to doing something, you know, expanding their horizons in some way? Do you have advice for that person? Yeah, do it. And especially if it scares you, do it. Um, but I would also say, research it thoroughly before you look for customers. Mm. You know, it's, it's not fair to experiment with a business relationship. Or if you're, in, if you're thinking about narration, it's not fair to your author to experiment and learn on their baby. So whatever you're planning on doing, uh, whether it's extracurricular or focused on your profession, make sure you research it before you do it. Wise words for us all. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, you and I spoke a long time ago, and I think you put this quote on your, on Narrator's Roadmap. You only have one chance to make a first impression, and 
it's not a good look to make a bumbling first impression with things that you could have easily discovered on your own before you made contact. Yeah, it's actually your quote, and it is there. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty pretty close to being uh, exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just frustrating. I mean, I can I can push buttons as easy as the next guy. So come on, folks, Google stuff. <laughs> Google is your friend. That's what I've been saying for years and years, especially yes. even when I worked in IT. It's like Google is your friend. Yeah, don't make me do your work for you. You you can do this. Do you have anything coming up that you want to plug? And how can people get in touch with you? I've got your website, uh, your audiobook production company, Great Plains Audiobook, is penned here. Is, ah. is that how you'd want people to contact you? or in, And like I say, do you have anything coming up you want people to know about? Oh, gosh. Um... Gosh, no, I don't really have anything to plug. Um, you Probably the best way to reach me is just my email. And this is super tricky, so pay attention, everybody. It's <laughs> Ann be tested. <laughs> exactly. My email is Ann at AnnRichardson.com. And there's no E on Ann, contrary to the lovely Ms. Flosnick. Yeah, that's how I tell y'all apart is... You're the Anne without an E, and she's the one with it. Aside from many, many, many other ways that I tell you both apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, on but, paper or via in email or whatever, that's a good way to look at it. Thank you well, for appreciating the no E. <laughs> well, you know, I have a name people can't spell, and so I always want to spell people's names correctly. And and I do, like when I'm writing to either one of you, I make sure I've got the right spelling because. I mean, I try to do that with everybody, but it's it's important. And so, yeah, I actually do think about that. She doesn't have any, she does. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, this has just been a wonderful, delightful conversation. And I'm just appreciating all you've said and your time and everything with us today. Um I think, though, it's probably time for everybody to get back on the road. So I'm going to wrap up today's pit stop. And the recording will be available on Clubhouse later today. And in the near future, I'll have it on Narrator's Roadmap on the, uh, and also a, a transcript on the pit stop page. Um, and Flossnick, tomorrow we're doing Narrator Uplift. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Um, we'll just be talking with our delightful mutual friend and colleague, um, Caroline McLaughlin, catching up with her. Yeah, I'm excited about that. We we used to alternate our shows, so I was one week and Anne was the next. And so this is the first week that we're actually going to be on the same week, and we think that's going to be easier for us and easier for everybody else mm -hmm. to to keep up with. We hope that's the case, but um, anyway, I'm looking forward to, to that tomorrow. And I hope everybody will join us in another two weeks for another road trip on May 10th, when that day we will talk with narrator and author Travis Baldry here on Pit Stop. In the meantime, I hope you find joy in every journey and live the life of your dreams. Thanks again, Ann Richardson, for 
this delightful conversation and your time today. Do you have any parting thoughts? No, it was a pleasure, Karen. You asked great questions, and I was happy to share and just honored to be here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you, Anne Flosnick, for your excellent observations and questions and support. And thanks to all the audience for joining us this afternoon. I hope you have a great week, and we will see you soon.